So grateful for the voices that lead us into the spoken word. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for this moment in time, this moment in which all of our paths have led to this place, in this moment that we might worship you, listen, pay attention, and also, Lord, that we might be transformed in some way that is still a mystery to us. Open our hearts and illuminate our spirits with your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've just been a few days with my grandchildren at the beach, and my son-in-law and my daughter and I had forgotten how important being first was to a three-year-old and a six-year-old, no matter what it is, to be first. Maybe when you're walking out to the car with your kids or your grandkids, you've heard a time or two someone call out, shotgun. And as soon as you get over the feeling that they have, in fact, not, uh, not spotted a sniper, but instead, they have called for being in the front seat of the car. There's a, a great sense of relief. I actually have a hunch that it's their way of edging closer and closer to the driver's seat. But that's just my hunch. Everyone seems to want to be first, and we have to include ourselves in that desire. Have you ever been at an airport, and maybe you're guilty of this, I hope not. But you, uh, you see everybody crowding around the gate, even when there's reserved seats. And, and they call for Section A, and, and Section D crowds up front, and there's just this overwhelming feeling of how unfair that is. Why don't they sit down? We get so frustrated with people. When we're supposed to be first, have you ever had people crowd in line in front of you? Why does that make us so mad? We like to be first. I mean, some people camp out overnight to be first for a movie premiere or first for a book release. And there's also, of course, the mob scenes, injuries, and sometimes death as a result of trying to be first at a Black Friday sale. Also, we promote first place. I'm not a very competitive person in terms of sports. So this is one area I don't understand. But I hear people who are competitive in sports are mocking of the silver and the bronze in the Olympics. There's only one medal to win, I've heard it say, and that's gold. And I thought, well, I wouldn't mind a silver or a bronze. But that doesn't seem to be the prize. There's even a, a prize for people who eat the most, jump the highest, or can walk the farthest first. They get into a book. I was reminded of this when I just happened to catch this uh, song by Liza Minnelli, and it's called Maybe This Time. And there's this line that she sings in it that I had to chuckle a little bit as I was doing this sermon. I happened to hear this uh, random song, but it says, everybody loves a winner, so nobody loves me. And I thought, all of that, that understanding, the, ra the space race, who gets to the moon first? And then I thought, well, what happened when we got there first? What, is that, what does that mean? It's good to reflect on 
this, I think, particularly when we come to the text for today. Because unless we, unless we reflect a little bit on our modern-day propensity to still need to be first, then we might distance ourselves from this text and the mindset and the actions of the disciples, and we might judge them to be fools. But with the thought in mind that we, too, need to be first in many things, we come to our scripture. This is from Mark 10, 35 through 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Right off the bat, that sounds like, a, like my three-year-old grandchild. And he said to them, What is it you want for me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left and in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. On one level, when we look at this particular scripture, it seems like just yet another example of the disciples, all of them, not just James and John, as the fumbling, bumbling, keystone cops of Jesus' followers who simply cannot get anything right or even worse, are selfish or childish. Jesus, you see, has just predicted his own humiliation and crucifixion, not for the first time, not for the second time, but for the third time, he has just predicted his humiliation. And as soon as the words are out of his mouth, James and John immediately request their place and honor. Oh, you're going to another place? Well, we want to be on the right hand and the left hand side when Jesus enters into his glory. In fact, they seem totally oblivious at this moment to the status reversal that Jesus has been talking about throughout his whole ministry so far. Blessed are the poor, and the meek shall inherit the earth. They haven't quite heard the truth of that message yet. And they do not understand the ironic place of glory that is going to be uh, for those who follow Jesus. The ironic place of glory is the cross. And that it actually will be the criminals who are at his right and at his left in that ultimate moment of his glory. And in fact, both Matthew and Luke seem a little bit embarrassed by the behavior of the disciples in this um, 
particular story. If you read the story in Matthew, Matthew has the mother of the two sons being pushy with Jesus. Blame it on mom. The, the quintessential Jewish mother is the one that says, I want my son on the right and my son on the left. At least that's how Matthew depicts it. And then Luke's gospel glosses over the entire incident, calling it a dispute over which one of the disciples wants to be greater. Isn't that interesting? But as Jesus tells them, they literally do not have a clue what they're asking for. And they really don't. And nor do they catch what Jesus is saying them when he asks them, can you drink from the same cup? And can you, can you be baptized with the same da- baptism? When they assure him that they can, he assures them that they will. Emptiness and fullness seem at first to be complete opposites. But in the spiritual life, emptiness and fullness aren't. In the spiritual life, we find the fulfillment of our deepest desires by becoming empty for God. This is the, this is the crux of the matter. This is an offhanded comment, it seems, by Jesus, but yet this is the heart of this particular scripture. Are you really ready for what following me actually means? Are you really ready for that? In the spiritual life, we are called upon to empty everything that is our life, everything that we know to be true, everything that we know to be a mark of an impressive mark of success and prestige and and reputation and name, and we're called to empty that in order to be able to receive the fullness that God has for us. We're called to do that. It's not an easy thing. Are we really ready? Are we really prepared to follow Jesus in the ways that Jesus lived Jesus' life? Jesus lived this on the cross, the moment of complete emptiness and complete fullness became one moment in time. When he had given everything away to Abba, his father, he cried out, it is fulfilled. He who was lifted up on the cross was also lifted into the resurrection. He who had emptied and humbled himself was raised up and given the name above all names. I think it's very, very important for modern day Christians, for us to keep listening to that question that Jesus asks, can you drink the cup? that I am going to drink? James and John were eager to ease kind of into positions of power and glory. And the brothers don't realize at all that they are soon going to be called upon to sacrifice everything for their cause. I I think sometimes we struggle with these same issues. We assume certain privileges and rights and guarantees accompany this devotion and obedience to Christ. And we actually feel betrayed when we continue to experience suffering or disappointment or loss or failure. When, when life makes a claim on us, we feel as sometimes betrayed. 
How could this be? I'm a devoted follower of Christ, and are we not doing the exact same thing as those disciples of old? Part of our chagrin over the behavior of these cherished disciples, I think, goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, about our own propensity, that all of us in some way perhaps are sons and daughters of Zebedee. And Jana Childers, who's a wonderful professor and theologian, has said, each of us have Zebedee DNA in our genes. I think that's very true. Even as I push my way to the front, when I have an A on my section with Southwest Airline, and I want to make sure there's no B people in front of me, Certainly, I think that we know better than maybe to make an outlandish and insensitive request as these two, like Jesus says, you know, I'm going to die soon. And they say, you are? Well, can we have the seats next to you? We still, all of us, we still want the best seats in the house, don't we? We want our children to be at the top of the class. We want a lot of things. We want a lot of things that we would never say out loud we would never even utter them because even to our own ears, they sound so selfish and self-centered, but we want them. Well, when the other disciples, the other ten, hear of James and John's impudent request, they're upset. And the scripture never makes it clear why they're upset. And I think that we can only speculate that perhaps they're not upset on behalf of Jesus, but more along the lines of, why didn't they think of that first? They might be more upset with that these two actually were uh, made this bold attempt to get ahead when they were also dreaming of power and position. Maybe there were some among them who even felt like they were closer to Jesus than the others. And they were aghast that they would ask to be on either side when it was, of course, their place to be on either side. But it's in their indignation that triggers Jesus' final discourse, his final discourse on the character of authentic discipleship. This is something that we say very often, but we don't very often really listen to what it says. It's not so among you, Jesus is telling them. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be a slave to all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We hear this all the time, and yet in our businesses, in our private life, in our Monday through Saturday life, we oftentimes forget the words, and not only forget the words, but to forget the deep and powerful commitment that Jesus calls on us to really live this kind of leadership out. As Christians, we are, we are all leaders, you see. Each and every one of us, whether you see yourself as a leader or not, you are. Because you, your life is making a proclamation to the world. Your life is making a witness to the world that things are different than what the world sees. 
We are the peculiar people of God. We are the ones that stand outside and look in and say things can be different. So as leaders, we are called to live out this model of leadership. The principal metaphors in discipleship in Mark 10 are servant and slave. And that's counter to what it is that we seek to do in our life. We don't want to serve and be a slave. We want to be free and be served. But as followers of Jesus, our desires and intentions are transformed into a different desire. And we're all still working on it, certainly. We don't quite have it down, any of us. But we still come, we still bring food, we still go on mission, we still pray for others, we still seek the best for others as much as much as we can. And so we, just like Thomas Merton writes, we don't know where we are along the line. All we can hope is that because we're trying, Jesus loves us deeply. We can count on that because we're trying This vision of surf, servant leadership is a very powerful antidote to common notions that equate servanthood with a lowly status and leadership with the ability to attain markers of success, such as material acquisitions and prestige and managerial or political power over others. Those things aren't bad things. But for us to equate that with leadership may not be accurate, Jesus says. Those are simply a walk of life that a person takes, and they get to a certain point, and these things have happened. But leadership, leadership is very different, says Jesus. Leadership. We often fail to keep in view the proper object of our striving, and instead we frequently fuse the purposes and goals of our own cause with our hope for pers personal successes. In ministry, I've seen this with my fellow pastors who long for the largest church and the, the richest church and the church that has every resource imaginable so that the congregation never has to struggle for a thing. And all the while, don't you realize you're, you might be raising a very entitled bratty congregation. We need to struggle a little bit, friends. <laughs> we need to struggle a little. Jesus' response to these disciples is not so much a rebuke, I don't think, because I don't read it that way. I don't hear it. Maybe you could read it later. And, and what's the voice that you hear Jesus saying? I think it's a reminder to the disciples and to us that we should be cautious about expecting too much of people. That we should be careful not to pin our hopes for salvation on those who simply cannot bear the weight of our expectation. On circling our faith around a person or around a cause other than God. That we should be careful not to pin all of our hopes a spouse to make you happy, a child to make you feel needed, a parent to blame or to thank. Anytime we set up a person 
as the center of our existence. Anytime we set up a person to be our savior, or they set themselves up to be a self-appointed Messiah, it will most likely, inevitably, indubitably, result in disappointment and at some point disillusionment. That's just the way it is in life. We, we get disappointed with each other. We don't live our very best selves or our very best lives sometimes. And so it will happen. Maybe the better response to our own human frailties is not to give up on the notion of leadership or action, but rather it's to set up checks and balances within our own community. It's, it's for us to remind each other in love and care and curiosity and um, conversation. We need each other to keep each other honest about who we are and where we belong. Perhaps now more than ever, we need to be a community of accountability. Jesus is the model of wholeness, and, and he would come not to be served, but to serve. And we keep looking at Jesus, and, and somehow, just like the disciples, we keep seeing ourselves greater than Jesus saw himself. When we have surrendered our frailties into the service of God, our lives begin to make this slow, beautiful work of opening ourselves to transformation. It's, it's just beautiful. And it's a slow and lifelong work of transformation, of, of a time in our life when our first thought won't be, what's in it for me? And a time in our life when it won't be, what will happen to me if I? But that instead it will be, how will this benefit? Who will this serve? How will this lift up? How will this open? This transformation by God's Spirit allows us to overcome the insecurities, insecurities and fears that drive us to greed and coveting. Is it my insecurity that I won't get a place on the plane? That somehow my name will be erased before I get to my seat? That, that has me wanting the, the B's to be exiled from the airport and just the A's to be led on, only when I'm an A. But in the larger story, the words of Jesus to James and John, you too will be crucified. That's basically what he says to them. You too will be crucified, just like me. It, it may at first seem like a threat, but what if it's not a threat? What if in the larger context of the story, we might read these words as an extraordinary promise? You will not always be driven by your fears and your need for security. Rather, you will be empowered to take up your cross and follow me. You will be faithful disciples to the end. What if that is the promise? When we are promised that we'll be crucified with Jesus and we are in baptism, that we will the, then be given the spirit of transformation that allows us to take up our cross. And here is the great promise for the church. We need not always live in fear. We need not continually seek our own security. 
Rather, we have Jesus' promise that we can and will live as faithful disciples as we seek to follow him. And transformation happens through servanthood. I'll say it again. Following Jesus in a life of servanthood transforms us into eternal life. When I was much younger in ministry, people would question a woman in ministry all the time. Every time I did a memorial service or a wedding or a, or a baptism or preached a sermon, there would be somebody who would question it and say it's not biblical or it's not right. And I, 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 I simply leaned back on this servanthood. I said, you know what? You're, you may be right, but I can't do anything about it. I'm just serving God in the way God has told me I'm supposed to serve. Because that's what we do. We serve, and we're compelled to serve no matter what anybody says about it. Following Jesus, even in unorthodox ways at moments, can lead towards wholeness. And servanthood, I believe, is a means to grace. So in light of this passage, these two, James and John, the words of Francis of Assisi takes on even more meaning, and I leave them with you. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen.